So one of my favorite Americans uh, is Thomas Alva Edison. Uh, you guys know about Thomas Edison. Uh, we studied him in school. Some of you probably remember him, but we st I studied him in school. And uh, he, he invented over a thousand different things, over a thousand patents just to Edison alone. Um, and he invented the microphone, he invented the movie camera, he invented the incandescent light bulb. I mean, these are things we kind of use, right? Um, and, and for 10 years, he had been working on a project. He was actually working on two projects at the same time. One was the phonograph. He had this idea that there would be some way to capture sound in some sort of place where you could hold it and then somehow amplify that sound and make it last. Like, we are so used to all the different ways that we can hear recorded sound now that it boggles the mind, right? He, he figured out how to put on a vinyl record the sounds that come out of our instruments and our voices and then keep it there so that all you have to do is drop a needle on it and it, and it plays, right? Does, that, does anyone know how that works? Today we don't know how that works, right? And he figured it out, right? So he was working on the phonograph on the one hand. And the other thing is he had this idea that there must be, now that the electric light was a, a real thing and it was a real possibility to have that in, in homes and all that, he started thinking about all of the ways that electricity could be used if only it didn't have to be plugged into a wall in order to somehow have electricity, right? Con consider none of the houses in those days were wired for any of this right? And he thought there must be some sort of a way that you could, you could harness electricity into a place where it would stay and last and you could just plug into that. And he had in mind what we now call the battery. And he had been working on the battery and the phonograph for about 10 years and he hadn't gotten there. And one day, uh, December 1914, when he was 67 years old, his workshop burst into flames. And in his workshop, he had absolutely, we say workshop, it was more like a, a huge concrete building. It had everything that he ever did, all of his laboratories, all of his equipment, all of his notes, everything that was in it, and it burst into flames. And he stood that night outside of his uh, workshop with his family watching it burn to the ground. Everything he had ever worked on, everything that he had, gone in one night. And he gathered his family and the people that worked with him that morning, the next morning, and stood outside of his workshop and gathered everybody into a circle. And the, the smoke was still rising from the ashes. It was insured for $200,000, even though it was worth well over a million dollars, even though most of it was priceless, because they had built it out of concrete so that it would be fireproof. But they didn't consider a fire that begins on the inside. And so not only did he lose everything, but it wasn't going to be monetarily replaced. And he stood with his family and his workers outside of what used to be their livelihood and really the, the future of our nation technologically. And he watched the, the smoke rise from the ashes. And he gathered everyone together and he said this, This 
there is great value in this disaster. All of our mistakes are burnt up. Thank God we can start anew. And three weeks later, he delivered the phonograph and the battery. Isn't that amazing? All of our mistakes are burnt up. Thank God we can start anew. Today, I'm going to invite you to do something that for some of us is going to be very uncomfortable. I'm going to invite you to actually think about the things in your life, the things in your past, the things in your present that are failures. I'm going to ask you to, to go there today, to actually call to mind the most shameful things, the most hurtful things, the most embarrassing things, the things that, that really, if anybody else knew, if they showed a video of your life and the whole world saw it, you would just hang your head in shame. The things that, that have marked your story that you hate. And I know that's not why you came to worship service this morning, to, to, to gather in and think about the things that you hate and, and all the things that are shameful in your life, but today I want you to think about that which is most embarrassing, most hurtful. Now, you'll be glad to know I'm not going to ask you to share them with your neighbor. <laughs> but I do want you to just think about them. Wouldn't it be great if you could see all that stuff burned up and just get a new start? There was a woman, we see her story in John chapter 8, uh, it's a familiar story, she's, she's caught in the very act of adultery, dragged into the temple square, surrounded by people sprawled out in the dirt, surrounded by men gawking at her, mocking her and laughing at her. She's been caught in the very act, she knows what the penalty is, and she's surrounded by the great men of her community, the priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all the religious elite, all the good people, the people who would never get soiled with this kind of sin, and her sin is exposed. It's exposed for everyone to see, and by God's grace, there was a priest there, not a priest really, but a rabbi whose name was Jesus. And Jesus stood in the midst of all of these men, rocks in their hands, and he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, the stones fell to the ground as those men walked away, ashamed of their own heart's attitude. And by the time she looked up and saw Jesus and looked around and saw no one else, Jesus said, does no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he said this, then go and sin no more. I don't condemn you either. It's burnt up. There's a new start. There was a guy who's named for his shortcomings. He's known for his shortcomings. He's known for his shortcomings. His name is Zacchaeus. And, and we know nothing about Zacchaeus except that he was a wee little man. And we know that he climbed up a tree to see Jesus, right? Luke chapter 19. And he climbs up this tree to see Jesus because he's heard about this great man of God who, who not only heals the sick and not only casts out demons and not only has power over nature, but somehow there's this mercy with him. Somehow there's this grace with him. Somehow there's this kindness with him. And he's just got to see this because his whole life has been built on treachery and deceit and stealing and robbing the people that he ought to be loving. And everyone hates Zacchaeus. Until Jesus comes along. 
sees him in the tree, calls him down and says, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, I want to have dinner with you tonight. Come, be my friend. And Zacchaeus' life is changed in an instant as he comes into relationship with Jesus. And before you know it, everything is changed for him. And Jesus expresses to him, I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know what you're about. But I also have a vision for your life about who you can be. And you don't have to continue to be the man that you have been. And Zacchaeus became a new man that day. And we know from Acts chapter 9, there was a man named Saul. He was a priest. He was, he was one of those Pharisees, the type that hold the rocks in their hands waiting to stone people. In fact, he had been involved in the death of many, many Christians because, because he had been assigned the opportunity or the responsibility, if you will, by the council to go and hunt out these followers of Jesus who, they, who were seen as blasphemers and to either put them to death or put them in prison, to going from city to city in order to make um, the church suffer, in order to break the back of the church so that people who had the audacity to name the name of Jesus would pay the same kind of price that Jesus paid for his alleged blasphemy. And we know what happened in Acts chapter 9 as Saul was on the way to Damascus in order to um, take captive another group of people and make them pay the price. We know that Jesus himself interrupted Saul's journey and that Saul fell to the ground blind and that Jesus spoke to him directly and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he had this encounter with the living Jesus, the risen Jesus, and it transformed everything. And Saul, the killer of the church, became Paul, the apostle of the church and the writer of most of the New Testament. Don't sit here today thinking about your shame, your hurt, your brokenness, the stains that are in your heart, and thinking that that defines who you are. As we take this journey to the cross, my prayer is that every single one of us will be able to see the power of the cross that makes it possible for us to bid farewell to a past that brings shame and to look forward to a future that brings joy. I want to take you back. Two weeks ago, I preached from Luke chapter 22, and we talked about the Passover table, and we talked about all of the elements there that are on the table, and we talked about the different kinds of food and what they represented, the herbs and the unleavened bread, all to help them look back on God's faithfulness, right? And we talked about this cup of wine that the, that the father of the family would pick up at the end, and he would pray a prayer and it would be a twofold prayer. One was a prayer of thankfulness for God's faithfulness in the past, looking back on the Passover. And the other was a heartfelt cry to God to one day send the Messiah. And every year they would gather and do that. Jesus gathered with his disciples to do that. It happens in Luke 22, but this time there's a change in the script. This time, instead of simply praying for the coming deliverer, Jesus drops a bomb on them and basically says to them, I am the deliverer and I have come. He says this covenant that we celebrate, that God made with us, that we remember from, from the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Elijah, right down through the years, this covenant that was always about the blood of animals is no longer going to be in place. There's going to be a new covenant, he said, and it's going to be a covenant in my blood. 
And it's going to be a covenant not based upon law, not based upon rules, and not based upon your works, but based upon my grace. And he says, I am the one who has come to set you free. And then he goes on to tell them that there at the table with them sits one among the twelve who will betray him that very night. And they begin to discuss who it might be. Peter looks over at John and says, well, uh, he's surely not talking about me. Is he talking about you? John says, why would he be talking about me? Obviously, I'm the one that he loves the most. He's not talking about me. I wonder if he's talking about Andrew. And Andrew says, why do you bring me into this? I have nothing to do. I have no intention whatsoever. I would never betray him. Where's Nathaniel? He's had this look in his face. I'm not sure about Nathaniel. And they begin to talk about who it might be. And that, of course, transitions into a discussion. Now, Jesus has just said to them, I'm going to go and bleed to death for you. And their discussion is, which one of us is the greatest? It began with a discussion about which one of us would betray him, and quickly it moves into, I would never betray him. In fact, I'm the greatest among us. Ha! You're the greatest among us. Who are you kidding? Obviously, you're not the greatest. Remember that time when you did, I'm the greatest among us, and it went back and around and around. And while these guys burst into an argument at the dinner table, nobody's ever had a family argument at the dinner table on a holiday, right? <laughs> they break into this argument, and the argument becomes so heated about which one is the greatest that they probably don't notice. But Jesus quietly stands up, takes off his outer garment, walks over to the basin that is by the front door, meant for washing feet. Every one of them saw, that, saw it when they came in. They saw it and they noticed that there was no slave there to wash their feet. And every one of them thought, well, that's rude. And they walked in. Feet covered in dirt and dust and sweat and the material that is on the, on the dirt roads there in the town after the animals have gone through just disgusting, horrible feet. And no slave there to wash their feet. And all of them thought, you know, I could wash my feet when I come in, but that's kind of slave work, and I, I don't want to do that. And then if I do that, then, then who's going to wash everybody else's feet? Once they walk in and see me bending down with the towel at the basement, all of a sudden I'm going to become the slave and I'm going to be the one washing feet. I'm not about to do that. And so every one of them looked at the basin, walked past it until Jesus, during the argument over who is the greatest, gets up, gets the basin, gets the towel, bends down and begins to wash their stinking feet. All while they argue about who's the greatest. And in, in essence, Jesus says, do you see what I have done? For, for you call me Lord and Master, and rightly so, for so I am. And if I, your Lord and Master, serve you in this way, and you argue about who is the greatest, let me tell you, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. I want you all to be great. I want you all to be spectacularly great. I want you all to go down in history among the greatest who ever lived. So if you want to be great, Pick up the basin, pick up the towel, and start being great. And they sit there in shame. Let's pick it up in Luke chapter 22. Turn your Bibles to the New Testament. Third book is the book of Luke. Toward the back of Luke, you'll find chapter 22. We're going to pick it up right in the middle of the goings-on in, in chapter 2, verse 31. 
after all of this has just happened. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus speaking to Peter says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. I find a lot interesting about this verse, but one of the things that I find most interesting is that he doesn't call him Peter. Like, Jesus is the one who gave him the name Peter, right? And, and Peter means what? Rock. Jesus named him the Rock. Okay? You talk about who's the greatest? Jesus had named Peter the Rock, Right? Now, we see the rock in popular culture, and we're like, okay, that's the biggest, the strongest, the toughest, the greatest, right? The rock. But Jesus doesn't call him the rock. He goes back to his old name, which was Simon. <laughs> so he's, he's call, he, he walked around being Simon until Jesus said, you are the rock, and then Peter's chest got stuck out a little bit, and he stood up just a little bit straighter from that day forward. And now Jesus, in the middle of this meal, says to him, um, Simon. And he doesn't say it once, he says it twice. Simon, Simon. I think this is pretty much like when your mom uses your full name. <laughs> Simon, Simon, I want you to know something. Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. Isn't that an incredible visual? Remember someone else that Satan requested to attack like this? Named Job? Things got tough for him. Simon, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. It's an, it's an astonishing kind of a thing to realize that you're under attack. Can you relate to that? It's so frustrating that after all that God has done for me and all I have seen Him do to change me, there are still those times when at least for a while I go back to being the old guy that I used to be. And I, I cease to live in the power and the strength and the glory that God has bestowed upon me as His child. And I go back to the days when Satan was the one that was pulling the strings in my life. I don't know if that ever happens to you when you're under pressure or hurt or when you're afraid. Jesus knew that in just a matter of hours, Peter would be under tremendous pressure. Peter would be hurt and he'd be terribly afraid. And that Satan was going to be aiming all of his arrows at him in those moments. And he predicted that when that happened, he would go back to acting like his old self. It was going to be a tough night for Peter or Simon. But Jesus wanted him to know that he was praying for him. Look at verse 32. But I have prayed for you. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when once you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. Jesus was praying for him. It wasn't that he kept him from being attacked. It wasn't that he kept him from going through terrible trials. It was that while all this was happening, Jesus himself was praying for Peter. Now, that's kind of a cool thing, right? 
Wouldn't it be great if Jesus was praying for you every time there was something going on? Oh, he is. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, says that Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of the Father, constantly making intercession for you. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, talks about Jesus, this great high priest, who as a priest exists eternally, and his role is to make intercession or pray for you. Guys, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how hard it is, but I know this. Jesus is praying for you. Why did Jesus need to warn Peter and the boys about the difficulty that was about to happen? He had to warn them. Because he knew that Satan is real. And, and in our culture today, whether it's little kids in Halloween costumes with pitchforks and pointy tails, or whether it's little impish guys in cartoons that stand on your shoulder and try to get you to do the wrong thing, we've gotten this idea that Satan is somehow like a mythical character, some kind of a comic book construction or something like that. Guys, we have to understand the war is real. The battle is real. And Satan is real. Satan really is serious about hurting you. He really is serious about holding you back. Not because he cares about you. He doesn't. I don't think he cares enough to hate you. I think he hates God. And he knows how much God loves you. And so he's going to do everything he can to attack whatever God loves. And we live in a fallen world where Satan has been given the freedom to reign and to create systems that are designed to lead people away from God. That's reality. And he knows that you're still dealing with the flesh. And he knows that because of that, you want what is not right or good or loving or kind from time to time. That's why we tend to go our own way even when we know better. Because the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, because of that, I know right from wrong. But even though I know right from wrong, there's a very real part of me that wants what I should not have. Anybody know what that's like? That I, I want what I should not have. The Bible calls this the flesh. And it doesn't take much for Satan to get us to walk where we shouldn't walk because there's something in us that wants to walk there. And if you're not sure how this works, just watch and see what happens the next time it's an incredibly crowded parking lot and you are looking for a parking space. If I can
to Wanda. One of you is capable of that. <laughs> the struggle is real. Can I get an amen? Because Satan is real. The flesh is real. And this world system has stacked the deck so that it is very difficult to live a life that is pleasing to God with any level of consistency. Look again at verse 32. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you... When once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says he's praying for Peter, and then he lets him know that it's not going to be like this forever. He says, Peter, there's gonna, this is going to be the roughest weekend of your life. You're going to finish this weekend, and you're going to be so ashamed of who you are and so fearful about who you're going to be. You're going to have lost all hope for the future, all the things that you think God wants to use you for, you're going to think you're disqualified for by the end of this weekend. I just want you to know something. There's a day coming because I'm praying for you. There's a day coming, Jesus says, because I'm praying for you. There's a day coming when you will turn. You're not going to keep going the direction that you've been going. I have a plan for your life that is bigger than you could possibly imagine. And of course, when, when Jesus tells Peter all this, it sets him off because he's Peter, right? Look at verse 33. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I, have said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me, denied three times that you know me. Peter just couldn't imagine it. No matter how hard he looked, he couldn't ever see himself betraying Jesus. He had just sat at the table making an argument for why he would never betray Jesus. I bet none of them could. But the truth is that no matter how much we love God, no matter how hard we try, we all struggle with the flesh and from time to time we deny Him. We betray Him. The Bible calls that sin. It says that sin is failure. Because the, the definition of success is to be pleasing to God. The definition of sin is to do what is not pleasing to God. And so sin is failure. But listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Failure is an event, not a person. Failure is an event, not a person. Failure is unfortunately what we do sometimes, but if you are a child of God, failure is not who you are. Don't lose heart. 
Turn back from your sin. Get back to the important things of serving God and serving others. Jesus saved you and He reminds you that He intends to use you to change the world. Don't believe Satan's lies that try to tell you that when you mess up, it's game over. They try to tell you that the things that have happened in your past, even maybe in the very distant past, maybe in the not-so-distant past, that those are the things that define you. That the, the, the ways that you have set out to do right but stumbled and fallen, that that defines who you are and that's the label that you will wear. Your failure can be Satan's strongest weapon or it can be God's greatest tool to shape you and mold you into the image of Jesus Christ. A sin is one thing, but Satan will always come around and try to multiply the impact of your sin by making you think that you could never be forgiven, you could never be good enough, and you must be out of God's picture now. But let's remember Peter. Did he end up going on to deny Jesus three times before the rooster crowed? He absolutely did. But he also repented. He turned, as Jesus said that he would. And in John chapter 21, we see this amazing reunion between Jesus and Peter. And he was used by Jesus to strengthen the brethren again and again. Guys, failure is an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to change. It's a chance to humble yourself and to remind yourself of how desperately you need God. It's a tool that God can use to conform you to the image of Christ. But don't lose heart, my friends. Don't give up. The cross was not for nothing. The purpose of the cross and, and, and all that it does for you, it has a purpose and it makes a difference. Jesus died to give you new life. Walk in that life. And don't let the enemy convince you that you can't. Here's what you need to do when you realize that you have sinned, that you have failed, that you have stumbled, that you have taken yourself out of the game. First of all, do this. Call sin what it is. Sin is sin. Enough about this, I made a mistake. Enough about this, I'm a victim. Enough about this, it's my parents' fault. Enough about this, if you hadn't, then I wouldn't have. How about if we just look Jesus in the eye and realize that He paid the price for that sin. He knows exactly what it is. Let's call it what it is. Let's stop making excuses for ourselves. And let's be real with God and say, God, once again, in my flesh, I have fallen flat on my face. Once again, I have betrayed you. Once again, I have chosen to be my own Lord, even in just this one little situation. Once again, I've fallen. Own it. Until you deal with it, it's never going to be dealt with. The second thing is this. Do what Jesus said. Turn. We have to turn from our sin. The Bible calls that repenting. We have to turn from our sin and seek forgiveness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We have to be willing to confront Jesus with our sin. We have to be willing to face Him. We have to be able to confess it. And to confess means to agree with God about your sin. And to repent means to turn from your sin. Guys, 
We have been empowered. If you are a Christian and the Holy Spirit lives within you, you have been empowered to live in righteousness. Your failure doesn't have to mark your future. It's not about your faithfulness. It's about His. And God is faithful. And He will restore you, just like He did with Peter. I'm sure that when Peter caved into fear and temptation and he denied Jesus three times, he must have felt terrible, especially when he knew that Jesus knew about it. Back in, in chapter 22 of Luke, go to verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, and Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You're one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. And we'd like to stop reading there, but look at verse 61. The Lord had turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Somehow as he's making this last of his denials, Jesus is apparently being led through the courtyard and hearing what Peter had to say and then hearing the rooster crow. Jesus stops, blood dripping down his face from the beatings he's already begun to take and he looks at Peter and stares in his eyes. The Bible says that this big, strong, leader-type guy, Peter, sobbed like a child and ran away. You talk about defeated. You talk about ashamed. You talk about broken. That's where Peter was. And you know what? Jesus was about to be killed, which meant... Peter would never have a chance to make it right with him. He would never, ever be able to talk to him again. He would never be able to say, I'm so sorry. He would never be able to seek forgiveness. He had now blown it. He had destroyed everything. And his life, which had taken such an upturn toward greatness, is now going to end in shame. Judas had a very similar experience, and he went out and killed himself. But in John chapter 21... After the resurrection by the side of the water, Jesus and Peter sit down over breakfast and Jesus gets a chance to ask him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter gets a chance to be restored to Jesus and Jesus says, the plan that I have for your life has not changed. I have a great ministry for you. Now come with me. You're going to become the leader of my church. We have to call our sin what it is. We have to turn from our sin and confess. And we have to repent and walk away and go the other direction. And God will restore and God will refresh and God will revive and God will renew and God will bring new life because that's who He is and that is what He does. And He will be pleased with us and we will be used by Him to change the world. When all of this has happened, Jesus said, 
Turn and strengthen the brethren. My plan for you will not be gone because of this stumble, because of this pattern of stumbles, because of what happened to you, because of what you've done to others. My plan for you will not be thwarted. There is nothing greater than the grace of God. He gives new life. And what that means is that the cross is never wasted. And because of the cross, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, here's what it means. If you didn't get anything else, get this, write it down. You are not stuck in your sin. That's what it means. Wherever you're at in your journey, however deep it has gotten, however far into the miry clay you have walked, you are not stuck in your sin because of the power of the cross, because of the power of the grace of God. It means that though you may have failed time and time again, by the power of Jesus Christ, you are not a failure. The power of Jesus is enough to overcome the grave. It's enough to transform your life when you put your life truly in the hands of God. And that just brings us to just a place of confrontation. I asked you to, to just go back and think about the things that you're most ashamed of. Jesus says if you'll just lay it all at the foot of the cross, you can exchange your burden for mine. And my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Have you ever done that? Have you ever placed your whole life in his hands and said, God, even the areas where I have consistently failed that I'm ashamed to even talk to you about, and I certainly don't want anyone else to know about, even in those areas, God, I'm going to give it all to you. You're going to be the Lord, and I'm going to be your servant. Or is there still some stuff you're holding on to? Maybe you've been in church your whole life. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. But there's just this one area, maybe two areas, that you're just not going to let go of because you don't trust God enough to kind of let Him have all of it. And maybe you're walking around in chains today when He's already paid the price to set you free. My friends, you will never know freedom until you let go of everything that stands between you and Jesus. But when you do, you will know what Jesus meant when He said, I come to give them life and that more abundantly. Isn't it about time that you knew the way that God was calling you to go? Wasn't it, isn't it about time that you lived the life that God was calling you to live, that Jesus paid such a price to give you? What is standing in the way? Just trust Him enough to let go. He loves you. And that's what defines who you are. Let's stand and pray together.